When I was a kid, one of the coolest things about my bedroom were the stars. No, I didn't live outside. <laughs> See, my parents got us a bunch of glow-in-the-dark stars for our ceiling. And we put them up, and we, we loved having them. Now, these star stickers they got us were a whitish color, which means that against the white ceiling, they didn't show up that well. In the daytime, at least. Nighttime was a different story. Because when everything got dark, those stars glowed brightly. Now, much like those stars, or like real stars, grace shines the brightest against a dark backdrop. It is only once we can see the deep darkness of our sin that we can appreciate grace's light. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace is not nearly as amazing if we are not lost, blind wretches to begin with. Last week I ended by quoting Romans 5.20, which says, where, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I want you to, to keep that at the forefront of your minds, because the next few weeks could get pretty dark. As the prophet Hosea really unleashes a, a tirade over sin and judgment, which kept increasing. So where sin increased, grace abounds. Sometimes we need to take the time to paint the dark backdrop first in order to really see the stars. And I think this will make the glimpses of grace we see along the way all the more beautiful to us. We've been journeying through the book of Hosea together the, the past few weeks, and you can go in and turn there now in your Bibles or to page 752, if you're using one of the Bibles we provide in front of you. 752, Hosea chapter 4. So far we have seen Hosea, at, at God's command, take a surprising woman as his bride. A prostitute named Gomer, who then bore three children with Hosea. But this unlikely family arrangement took place in order to paint a picture of God's love. Because God said it was like he himself was married to a whore in the people of Israel. But he wanted to show how, dis he, how despite his people whoring themselves, he still loved them. That's what he wanted to communicate. Today, we're moving on from Hosea's biography into pure prophecy. But there was a reason he started with his biography and his family life. And that is because he wanted that to cast a shadow over the rest of the book. He wanted that to shape everything that we'll read from here on out. And it is my prayer that the love that God revealed to us, despite our sin, his incredible love that he revealed in the first few chapters will shine through, even as we venture into the dark today. Would you pray for that with me before we go any further? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that today that your truth would go forward. I pray that you would pierce hearts today. Even mine, 
God, we pray that you would convict us of where we have gone astray, where we have fallen short, where we need you to come and intervene. Lord, we need you. We need your grace. And we pray that by the end of the day, we would be blown away once again by how merciful you are to us despite our sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If a, if, if a preacher really wanted to get your attention, what would he have to say? Perhaps something like this would do. Look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, I don't know if Hosea shouted those words, but I, I can't imagine him not doing so. Hear the word. So he wants people to listen up. Hear the word of the Lord, Almighty God, Yahweh, is, is speaking through me. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. And there's a, an emotional term of endearment as we speak. Oh, children. So, it's, so God is speaking these words powerfully through Hosea to his beloved children. Sometimes, though, parents need to deliver hard messages to their kids. And after the happy ending of chapter 3, any peace or happiness we had is abruptly shattered. Continuing, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Other versions here say things like, God is bringing a case or a lawsuit against you. So it's like we just stepped into a court of law. And God's people are on trial. And there are plenty of charges that can be brought against them in this court. But perhaps the most shocking part of this scene is that God is the prosecutor. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. God is the one bringing the charges against his people. So, what are they being charged with? Well, first, there was a distinct lack of good around. Look again. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. No knowledge of God in the land. Now, that's a, a pretty sad state for people who are supposed to be reflecting God to the world. The faithfulness spoken of here basically refers to integrity of heart. So they had no integrity. Steadfast love or hesed love is talking about the love or the loyalty of a covenant. The total dearth of these qualities in God's people was especially stark in light of the fact that these were exactly the qualities that God had been showing to them. That he had been faithful. He had been lovingly committed to his people for centuries. He was Hosea to them. Pursuing, forgiving, pledging himself to blessing his wife. But despite him constantly pouring this love into their tank, their tank was bone dry. God was saying, you're empty. There's none of this in you. 
The Lord is a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And then the third quality Hosea says they lack gets at what will be the heart of today's passage. It says there is no knowledge of God in the land, anywhere in the land. Now, knowledge of God. There, there are two sides of the knowledge of God. A theological or doctrinal side of the knowledge of God and a relational side of the knowledge. So, theological knowledge would include knowing truths and facts about God. So, God is holy, God is love, God is just, God hates idolatry, and etc. Relational knowledge means knowing God personally as your God. So, not just knowing about God, but knowing God, worshiping Him, following him with your life. Hosea says Israel had lost the knowledge of God, period. Likely both sides of it. Hosea, Dwayne Garrett says this about what Hosea says, a people without knowledge of God are a people who have embraced false teaching about God and or who have no living connection to God. Now, if you think that kind of sums up the entire Christian life, you're right. Right? Nothing in life is more important than knowing God. Starting with your head and then moving to your heart. But here, Israel is weighed on the scales and found wanting in everything that matters most. So there was a severe lack of good. Meanwhile, there was no lack of evil. No shortage of sin. Listen to this ugly catalog of sins as we go on. The, the crimes. It says, there's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. Verse 2, there is, however, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Now this list relates to half of the Ten Commandments. The third, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth, to be exact. But what's interesting about uh, these commandments that he deals with is that these were the more outward-focused commandments. While the other five tended to deal more with heart issues, these dealt with outward actions. So, these were the social manifestations of their sin. They were the outward proofs of their inner rebellion. So God really essentially is presenting evidence to the court. He's saying, Exhibit A, swearing. Exhibit B, lying. Exhibit C, and so on. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. This is a picture of unchecked sin, debauchery, and violence in the land. And beyond the rampant crime and bloodshed, what were the results of all this? Look at verse 3. It says, Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Did you know 
that creation itself suffers because of our sin? It does. Whether by natural consequence sometimes or by direct judgment of God, creation suffers. Think of when Adam and Eve sinned. The natural order of the world was shaken and fractured. When God gave his law to the Israelites, he warned them that if they didn't follow it, that the land itself would spew them back out, vomit them out, as it did the wicked nations that came before them. Much later in the Bible, in Romans 8, God's word says that creation groans with the pains of childbirth. Now, this doesn't all mean that that inanimate objects or impersonal creatures literally have feelings. Much of this is poetic or figurative, but the effects of our sin are anything but. They're very real. Rebelling against the Creator leads to an undoing of creation. A poisoned environment. And this ain't speaking of something that green bins and carbon taxes can fix. Here in Hosea, verse 3 appears to possibly be describing a drought. It's everything is languishing, withering away, dwindling. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Garrett points out, in declaring that the land animals, the birds, and the fish are disappearing, Hosea has presented all of creation, earth, sky, and sea, as suffering the wrath of Yahweh. The wrath of God has a cosmic dimension. If the people of God are disobedient, then all creation suffers. Now, you may not have ever thought of your sin being such a significant deal before. I mean, it might be easy to think of someone like Adam and Eve's sins as this huge cosmic undoing. But your unbelief, your disobedience, your lying, your stealing, your pride, nah. But the only difference between their sin and our sin is that theirs came first. If yours had been first, it would have been just as disastrous. And just because it's less obvious doesn't mean it's not still disastrous, even today. Our sins have the same roots of pride and unbelief and self-idolatry. And our sins still strike at the same heart. The heart of God. Of our loving Creator God. Whom, whether for just a moment or for a lifetime, in those moments we are refusing to know Him. These verses, I think, give us more than just a peek at Israel's history. It's really a snapshot of all of history. God speaks, we've sinned, and all suffer. Here's how I put the major takeaway for us. That not knowing God causes widespread suffering. 
Creation itself languishes. Not knowing God causes far-reaching, widespread suffering. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. Now, whether or not we've realized that we have all felt this languishing before. In pain. In broken relationships. In animosity. In sickness. In tears. In poverty. In a, in a literally poisoned environment. In corruption. In war. In disasters. And in death. Sin is either directly or indirectly at the root of every single one of those issues. For the Israelites who abandoned their relationship with God, sin had disastrous results. Their society, as we've seen, was going to hell in a handbasket with bloodshed and drought and one day exile. But I wonder, I wonder if we in Canada in 2017 can really say we're any better than they were. If there is any faithfulness, love, or knowledge of God in our land, it's only because of the grace of God. And if we only took the five sins they mention here, the five outward manifestations of sin, it exposes an ugly reality in our lives. Is there swearing? You tell me with every OMG and GD and JC you hear. Is there lying? There's lying to save face. There's lying to hide secrets. There's lying on tax returns. There's lying for sick days. We think lying is a joke. Is there murder? Well, ignoring the fact that Jesus said hateful thoughts might as well be murder. A December article in the CBC said... Near-record homicide rate may be Ottawa's new normal. And, I'd say far worse than that, we kill one out of every three unborn babies in Canada. That's around 100,000 abortions every single year. There's bloodshed for you. Is there stealing? Of course there is. There's shoplifting and copyright infringement to embezzlement and fraud. There's all kinds of different ways to steal. And is there adultery? I doubt I need to elaborate on this one for you. But between pornography, adultery websites, sugar daddies, friends with benefits, premarital sex, extramarital sex, orgies, just say we've got this covered. You know, Ashley Madison, the infamous adultery website? Founded and based in Canada. I have a feeling that our land is mourning, too. Kind of like it's crying with every drop of water that flows over Niagara Falls. 
And this widespread sin causes widespread suffering. Our world and our society suffer with crime and violence and bloodshed from lax morals. We ourselves suffer the consequences of sin in so many ways. The people around us suffer when we hurt them with the sins we commit. And worst of all, God suffers pain. Emotional hurt when we spurn him for other lovers. So how can we make things right? Well, the secret lies in the things we lack. Namely, in knowing God. He is the only one who could ever get us out of this horrible jam. Back in the text, Hosea makes a surprising turn in verse 4. So far, it seemed like he's been targeting the entire nation of Israel. And maybe he was. But in verse 4, he suddenly narrows his focus into one specific group of people. Look with me. Verse 4. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. O priest. So God is saying the ones chiefly to blame for this mess were the priests. The priesthood. Yet let no one contend, let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. Now, if you have a, another version of Scripture there, it may say something that looks fairly different, such as your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. The, the point is actually the same. What this line basically means is that the people of the day were evidence or proof of the priest's guilt. They were the evidence God was bringing forth in court. Look at the people and you'll see the priests are guilty. Therefore, the priests would be judged. Verse 5, You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. The mother here represents the leadership of Israel who corrupted her children. And if you don't know much about the, the priests in Israel, they were the key spiritual leaders in the land. They performed all the sacrifices in the temple. They oversaw the feast days. They were responsible to teach the law of God to the people. And they were to set a godly example to the culture. Modern equivalents for the church would be spiritual leaders such as pastors or elders or teachers. And the core message of these and the following verses would be directed towards them. And that is this, that those who lead the way in not knowing God will be held most responsible. Those who lead the way in not knowing God will be held most responsible. This is actually a consistent message throughout the Bible. Think of millstones. right? And God doesn't pull any punches here in Hosea. He's like, you will be destroyed for this. Why so harsh? Well, they had already been starting the destruction. They had been destroying God's people. Look at verse 6. God says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. 
My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So this well-known statement, you might have heard it before, is actually a grievance against priests. The people lacked knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge of God. And God was like, my people don't know me because you haven't led them to me. You've rejected knowledge yourself. You've forgotten the law. And therefore, my people have followed you in this. Like Jesus would lament later, my people are like sheep without a shepherd. Because those who should have been shepherds were shirking their duties. And because they didn't know God, the people were on a path, it says, of destruction. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Imagine with me that you were a tour guide at the aforementioned Niagara Falls. So you got to to show people around and tell them about this breathtaking waterfall. Now, all around the falls, if you've been there, you'll know that there are fences or there are walls, barriers that say, don't go beyond this point. But let's say that one day, as a tour guide, you decided to lead your group beyond those points. I want to get you a really close-up view. So you have them clamber over this short wall, and you tell them, listen, it's fine, it's safe, don't worry. And then you proceed to walk them right up to the edge of the Roaring Falls. But then imagine one of them slips on the wet rocks and slides off the edge. Maybe even taking a few people with them plummeting, likely to their deaths. Who would be responsible for their deaths? You would. As the guide who led them there. Not only would you certainly be fired by the tour company for your reckless irresponsibility, you likely would be sued and arrested for criminal negligence. And this is like what the priests had done to God's people. They had led them to the brink of a precipice where they could fall and be destroyed. And this should act as a sober warning to anyone in spiritual leadership, including myself. As Garrett says, failure to teach the people rightly is a grievous offense. The preacher or teacher who sins in this way is not only responsible for his own misdeeds, but also of those whom he misled. We, as spiritual leaders, must reject, we must never, excuse me, reject the true knowledge of God. We must never forget his laws. Looking at the the state of spiritual leadership in North America, reveals a pretty sad picture. The amount of men and women that are leading their followers astray into untruth is very disturbing. The preachers who will preach health and wealth prosperity gospels, or squishy sentimentalism, or moralistic therapeutic deism, emotional manipulation, theological liberalism, or cultural accommodation, 
They teach anything but the pure Word of God and the true Gospel of Christ. And it says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Are, are we in the midst of this happening to us? I wouldn't doubt it. Just look at how many of the churches who downplayed truth have died. And But this warning, I think, is for us today. We must never ensure, or we must ensure that we never give in to the temptation to downplay truth, to stop preaching the Word of God. And we can do this by both guarding against those who would lead us astray from truth and by continually returning to the source ourselves, the source of the knowledge of God. Here's my personal assurance to you. The destruction of God's judgment is a very real danger. And God has given me a love for you all so that I never want to see any of you be destroyed by God's judgment. And so, I will do all I can to faithfully give you the true knowledge of God from His Word. I want you to know Christ to know the life in His death, to know the power in His resurrection, so that by God's grace, that, that that is all I will endeavor to proclaim to you, so that on the day that you stand before the Lord, He welcomes you. But I think we all really should look inside of our own hearts today. Because whether or not you're a leader in the church, we all have influence over others. I mean, First Peter even calls every believer part of God's holy priesthood. So how are you using your influence to lead people to know God and to love Him more? We all have influence. The priests of Hosea's day hadn't only abandoned their duty to lead people to God, they had in fact led the way into sin. Look at verse 7. It says, The more they increased, or the more the priests increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. Now, stop there for a moment. Whenever the Israelites sinned, what were they supposed to do? They're supposed to bring a sacrifice to the priest, right? To, to offer up to God. And the law instructed that whenever sacrifices, many of the sacrifices were brought, some of the sacrifices would be put aside as food for the priests. But apparently the, the priests started to enjoy this good arrangement so much to the point that they actually wanted people to sin more and more. I mean, after all, the more sin, the more sacrifices, the more fresh meat. But he says, and they say, they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. The, the grace of the sacrificial system that God had provided for his people had been corrupted into license and gluttony. Therefore, God says he's going to change their glory into shame. And there would be no exceptions. Verse 9. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them 
for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Share in the sin, share in the faith. God said here he'd repay them. Their wages would be to earn what they deserved. But exactly how he would repay them is interesting. He doesn't here hurl down fire and brimstone. He doesn't flood them with water or with fire. He doesn't even immediately send them off into exile. Though he would one day. Now, what we'll see is that God repays them by actually giving them more of what they desired. Specifically, food, drink, and lovers. So they would eat, they would make love, they would guzzle wine, and more. But there was a catch. What God gave them wouldn't ever end up satisfying them. See, sometimes... God can punish people by giving them exactly what they want. In fact, I think that's ultimately what will happen with hell. People spend their entire lives running in the opposite direction from God, and God will go, as you wish. The final point I think we'll see from this pretty dark passage is this one. Sin will never fully satisfy since it leads away from knowing God and into ruin. Sin will never fully or ultimately satisfy since it leads away from knowing God and into ruin. Look how Hosea says this. Again, verse 9. It shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. So here God gives them their desires, and then he proceeds to frustrate them in them, they shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Multiply, either referring to making babies or making money, one or the other. But I ask you, have you experienced something like this before? When you get exactly what you want, but the next day you're still unhappy. Come into some money. Go to a fine restaurant. You indulge. You get the girl or you get the guy. You enjoy your liquor a little bit too much. You you treat yourself to whatever you fancy. But then you wake up hungover, heavier, lonely, depressed, Yearning for more. Sin may satisfy us in various ways in the short term. But it never satisfies in the long term. Never fulfills. Do you notice why sin never satisfied the people in Hosea's day? Look again at verse 10. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken 
the Lord. So the reason that they were perpetually unsatisfied is because they forsook the only one who could satisfy them, the Lord. Instead, they pursued their own pleasures, cherishing, it says, whoredom and wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. What understanding do you think that's talking about? The understanding has to take us right back to the knowledge of God, doesn't it? In other words, sin robs us of the ability to know God as we should. In, in the way that sex or alcohol can blur or blind the mind, sin blinds the heart. By the way, this means that we shouldn't feel judgment towards the lost people that surround us. Most of them have been blinded. We should feel sympathy and compassion for them. And as the Spirit enables, we can seek to remove the blinders from their eyes with truth. And when we lose understanding of God, when we lose the knowledge of God, we naturally end up trying to replace Him. Look with me in verse 12. It says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore consulting blocks of wood, hearing oracles from sticks, is a picture of pure delusion. That just can't happen. But really, anything other than the worship of one true God is equally delusional. And we have people today inquiring of phones and books and celebrities, and therapists, and Google, getting all their knowledge from schools, and from friends, and from the internet, but not God. It's not wrong to get knowledge from elsewhere, as long as it lines up with the truth. And as long as nothing replaces God as your source of truth, and life. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. And so Hosea returns to some of his trademark language of infidelity. It's very fitting language, as it alluded to both the metaphorical and literal realities. Metaphorically, Israel was cheating on God with other gods. Literally, Israel was immersed in a highly sexualized idolatry. And this is what is described in the final couple verses for today. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. So this picture we have here is 
They were worshiping idols wherever they could, making sacrifices everywhere they could, mountains, hills, under all kinds of trees, which God really scorns here. He's baffled. It's like, you like worshiping idols there because you like their shade. But what was going on here is these false religions appealed to the senses. They were attractive to common people. And so the Israelites got caught up in the debauchery of the practice of the day with with seemingly everyone consumed with promiscuity and adultery and prostitution. Side note, it's highly significant that Hosea exonerated the women and indicted the men here. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, women usually face the brunt of criminal charges. And the men would often get off scot-free. Think of when the adulteress was brought before Jesus and the man was nowhere to be seen. So for Hosea to accuse the men would have had a powerful effect on his audience. These men would not be able to oppressively pass the buck this time. But I think it also reiterates our second point that we saw earlier. Right? Those who lead the way into sin, they'll be held most responsible. And the men of Hosea's day had utterly failed their women. Not only failing to protect them, but leading them into destruction themselves. And indeed, the the final word in today's passage is ruin. Ruin. And the people without understanding shall come to ruin. This brings us full circle. There is no knowledge of God in the land. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. These things take away the understanding, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. God merely frustrating his people in their sin would only last so long. Eventually he would judge them for their sin. And ruin would come. Historically it did. Derek Kidner says, what this passage says is that the folk that won't think won't survive. No political initiatives, no social engineering could save a people in this state of mindless apostasy Nothing but repentance. Each one of us today here will fall into one of what I believe two camps today, which will determine how we must respond to this. Either we don't know God today as our Lord, as our Savior, and therefore we are on this path away from him, and toward ruin. Or, we do know God. And therefore, we have been rescued from this path of destruction. If you don't know him yet, the only thing that can save you is him coming to your rescue. That's the only thing that can save you. 
And thankfully, we believe that that is exactly what happened when Jesus came down to earth. It's like God was up in heaven watching his people and looking down and thinking, I see the people that I love languishing. They're being destroyed. And I hate that. So, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to languish with them a while. So they can know me. And then... I'm going to be the one destroyed. I'm going to die so that they can live. If you have not turned from your sins before and turned to Christ to save you, I hope that that's what the heaviness of this message compels you to do, even today. To flee from them and flee to him. To the refuge, the mighty cross. And if today, by the sheer mercy of God, you find yourself on the other side of things. You know God. You do believe in God with your heart. You know him personally as your Lord, as your Savior. I challenge you today. Are you growing in the knowledge of God? Are you pursuing him with your whole heart? Are you faithfully going to the source, filling your minds with true knowledge? Are you learning to love Jesus more with your thoughts, your words, your actions? And are you blown away by knowing his grace? Grace that is greater than all our sins. Remember what the Lord promises back in chapter 2 when he mercifully pursues us as a lover. He said this, he said, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And then listen to what he says, And you shall know the Lord. You shall know the Lord. How will we know the Lord? Well, in Colossians 2, Paul prays that believers would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ. In Him alone is all the understanding and knowledge we ever truly need. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word has power. Your spirit speaks the truth to us. And Lord, if there are hearts here today that have been convicted, shown their sin, I pray that they would run to you. That they would not put this off, that they would not ignore it, that they wouldn't shun it. That they would fight to see your mercy. 
Lord, I pray that your mercy would make make itself so clear to us today. Help us rejoice in you. For it is amazing grace that you came down. You loved us despite our sin and saved us. Thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. I hope that is your prayer today as you go from here. Your trust is in Him. If you need to talk or pray or do some business with God, I'd love to do that with you. Or you can be, do it alone as well up here at the front. Um, if you, you could just have this area up in the front here, be a quiet area, you can do that. And everyone else can hang out and talk in the back. But I'd love to do that for you. Don't put this off. It is the most important thing you can ever do to get right with Christ, to know Christ so you can boast in him. Let me just leave you all with the words from Second Peter 3. It says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. God bless.